0: and welcome to this episode of the views from the bath podcast it's another week another episode we're keeping ourselves on a on a good schedule um i hope you enjoyed our episode with Cass last week we got some some nice feedback and it's been great to be hearing from you guys on the instagram as well so it's uh another episode with your three favorite phd students uh david and edmund what have we been up to this week David, what's what's been what's been in your life this week? It's
1: another week at CERN and another week in lockdown in Switzerland, so I don't have too much exciting to say outside of doing work all week. In my PhD I had a few sort of nice culminations of projects happening this week where a couple of months of work has sort of all come to a point where it's deliverable and I was able to show it off in a meeting and got some very good responses from that. So that was a nice bonus but on the flip side a couple of days after that I was then in the lab until 7:30 in the evening because uh, some of the electronics that I was working on had broken mainly because I was trying to upgrade it and that's always a bad idea on a Friday evening but it meant that I was had a very long day at CERN. so I had had the good and, and the bad all in the same week which is I, I guess PhD life so
2: uh, how about you guys?
0: Yeah, I was going to say. Ed, what, what's been up with you?
2: So, I had a pretty easy start to the week. Monday, Tuesday, I was just pottering about, carrying on with the training. And then on Wednesday and Thursday, my CDT ran two mornings, which uh, are called the RTI Challenge Days, where we get a load of our industrial partners in and we have roundtable discussions on a load of different topics that uh, our industrial partners uh, want to talk about. So um, we were talking about the use of AI in the marine industry and difficulties that can arise in in sort of using all of these systems together in an underwater environment. And then we also had very different discussions on sort of policy uh, and how we should be looking to interact with AI going forward and what sort of agency we have to to influence the the future progression of it. There was a whole range of of different partners there uh, and it was it was really good fun to sit down and talk with people who are actually using some of this stuff in the industry uh, and getting to chat across a whole multidisciplinary group of pe- people. Uh, so that was that was the highlight of my week so far. And then um today was uh, Zwift Racing which is slowly becoming more, a bigger part of my life which is a uh, good fun so yeah well uh, what have you been up to ed uh, apart from racing with me today
0: <laughs> yeah that has been that's probably one of the more fun things this week uh my week has been kind of a, a bit mixed as as i had been in the last few weeks i'd had some CDT commitments with my policy and nuclear policy discussions. I've now got through the lecture parts. Um the lectures are interesting in comparison to what we have in sort of a engineering or scientific lectures. They're they're very much in a different kind of structure where there's a lot more kind of storytelling. You you do get through a certain amount of content and theory and things like this, but they the way it's presented is kind of with with lots of examples with lots of kind of personal experience from the lecturers it's it's kind of interesting to to experience that and that side of it it may be seeing what might be life might be like in say a politics or a economics type degree for a little bit I think it, it probably told me that at times I would have been frustrated because you. There's a sometimes, especially when you're you have time commitments. It feels like oh, I've, uh, there's probably only five hours of ma- lecture material, but we're being taught it in twenty. But I could also understand from from the other side if I was trying to do that five hours of material without the stories they it would or without their kind of examples it would take much longer and I just none of it would go in. So that was good. Uh but moving I've finished lectures on that course and I'm now writing some essays, which again, not my favourite thing. I I find I can articulate a little bit better when I talk than when I write stuff down. I'm not the best at written formats. But I'm working on it. I got recommended a book called Writing for Science, so I will I'm planning on reading that and have read it by, will planning to have read it by the end of my PhD so I can, I can use some of the information in the thesis, but it's, hopefully I'll get it done before then, especially if we go into a technical career, being able to write technical reports is something that will be important.
2: Yeah, I've definitely found writing more essays recently has really helped improve my writing style and also how long it takes me to get through writing things. So doing more sort of social science essay style work has really helped me progress in normal standard scientific report writing. Uh, And it it can be very challenging to do it in a subject matter that you're not used to um, and in a style that you're not used to. But I've at least found it very useful so far so uh, a question for you
1: two um, on this sort of topic is when you're in your undergraduate or or even the early parts of your phds have you had any courses on
0: report writing were, were, were you taught how to do it for me during my undergrad i was there was some teaching i, I think that it could have been improved there were some positive elements to it it kind of it was focused specifically on what they were looking for really during the uh during the undergraduate talk course and how they liked their reports to be written but it generally focused more on structure and rules to follow and referencing and things like this which is all really important but the they kind of tell you to spend some time thinking of how you want to structure a report and spend some time thinking how you put your content together, which which is an area where the that's important is being able to do that stuff not just saying oh, i'm going to think about how i structure my report is understanding and thinking how to do the storytelling during my phd i haven't done been taught anything directly on the content writing but i have i have done graduate courses on doing the physical writing in uh, latex because that's a that's something that is i think going to be useful and important for me when i actually start writing the final thesis have you what was it like on your side ed
2: yeah, so so I think my undergrad was similar in that they told us the sort of style of writing they wanted to do for our reports and would guide us through how they, how they expected that to be done. But usually, they like they would like to give us some amount of autonomy with how we should structure it and how we wanted to go about approaching structuring the essays. And reports that we wrote, but I think the PhD that I'm in now, it's very different. At least for our social science essays, our lecturer was really good about it. They gave us quite a detailed description of how they went about writing social science essays because it's a relatively different technique to to what we're all used to with report writing. So, uh, aside from the content, she spent a, a decent amount of time not only telling us how she, she goes through doing these sorts of things, but listening to our ideas and providing feedback on draft reports we would write and things. There was a really good structure with that, and it was it was actually nice not to be just told, go away and think about how to do it, but actually being given some sort of idea of how to better structure it and link these things together and and go through the whole writing process from researching to coming up with a, a argument scheme to then translating that argument into a good paragraph structure and then finally putting your points down for a for a cohesive argument to for what you're trying to write w- which is something I'd never done before and and not having written an essay since probably year 10 it was quite challenging
1: yeah and I, I guess all of those courses will also stand you in good stead when you come to write your thesis in a couple of years as well.
2: And then going on into the world of work as well. Yeah I think uh, one of the things I missed whilst having a job last year was having to use Word instead of LaTeX. It just seriously upset me. Yeah and that's something that I in,
1: in physics we basically got told we'd get a worse grade if we used Word instead of LaTeX and that was from first year onwards so At that point, I I certainly just committed a bit of time in my first year to just learn how it's done at the sort of basic level, enough that I could write these reports. And then since then, I've been able to build on that experience. And it's just meant that, for instance, now when I need to write a report or something, I I can just do it instantly in LaTeX. I don't have to commit that time now to going through that learning curve.
2: Yeah, and the number of times at undergrad you heard nightmare stories of people spending literally days going through their references, trying to make sure that they'd numbered them all in the right order in their text and in their in their, in their bibliography. It baffled me how how they, they would still continue through using Word when when you could show them that LaTeX existed and you, you could have all of these references in your in your BibTeX and if you didn't use them, it didn't go in your bibliography, and if you did, it would cite them exactly how you wanted them cited. But yeah. I I will forever be a champion of LaTeX to anyone who asks what should I write in. <laughs> yep,
0: yeah, so, so will I. I think it's it's also getting the putting the time in not just to learn how it's done, but to to build yourself a few templates. And once you've done that, the I know the the commitment to being able to write in, in LaTeX is pretty small. Once you've got those templates in place you just reuse them, right?
2: Like, yeah. There's
0: no need to write it, write the code for, for the formatting. It's just slight changes where you might want to have to do different things or, or if, a, for example, a different paper or a different journal wants a slightly different change, often at times it's just changing one number in one line rather than trying to mess about
2: with something in Word. Yeah, it was really interesting. Someone on my CDT said instead of using a new Bibtex file for each project that they're on, they just have one huge Bibtex file that they use for every single project For if they want to ever refer back to anything they've read before. And I was like, yeah, because it only puts in what you cite anyway. So there's, there's no harm in just having this relatively large file uh, it, as long as you can sort of remember the shortcuts that you've named them. It, it's and it makes you go back and think oh i I looked at this paper recently and maybe it might be relevant to what i'm writing
0: and good documentation is key for that yeah other than that yeah what else was i doing this week
2: after that i i
0: also had some technical work to do i've been continuing with simulation work i i think if you listen to every episode i'll be having been done doing simulation work every week because to some extent that is especially during during COVID times it is my life i feel like i'm making progress i'm next week we'll be taking an opportunity to to talk to somebody who's more more adept, not higher knowledge in the subject than me and that would be nice to to touch base with them and say and make sure i'm going in the right direction so that's great that'll be good and then i've also been continuing with some experimentation which is again like it's something that i think as a skill needs to just be kept ticking over and as in in my line i do require to put a little bit of time in into every week experimentation has been a bit frustrating but but again it's we're getting there i'd say <laughs> not that that's the most exciting outcome So, one of the things we wanted to talk about this week, we've we've talked last week about the end of the PhD process, this week we're going to talk about the beginning, and how to get into a PhD, and and that process, and how that's worked for for the three of us. So, as the most recent starter, how
2: how did that go for you, Ed? What I found when I was looking for a PhD, or first of all, I I, I heavily advocate for findaphd.com, is... Fantastic. There's a number of different filters you can use on it, and it gives a good amount of information for the project that you're looking yeah. at. You can filter them by funded and non funded. And it also gives you information on the PhD, on whether it's for local students or for international students. So more defence types of PhDs are quite often restricted to British citizens. And then you can also find PhDs from all over the world that you can go and apply to as an international student. So that was my first port of call. Then I started looking around and seeing what type of PhD I wanted to do. Having done geophysics as an undergrad, and looking at the types of projects that were available, I felt I, I didn't really want to go and do a PhD purely in the subject that I'd done, done my undergrad in and had been working in. So that that swayed me more towards doing a CDT with a year of teaching at the start, because whatever I'd then be doing my project on. I could much more tailor the skills that I had ready to to go back into full-time research Uh, and I felt possibly I'd lost a lot of my um, high-level technical ability through through working for a year and it it wasn't sort of mathematically challenging the work I was doing. There there was a lot of coding and a lot more things with infrastructure base working, but the the actual nuts and bolts of maths and mechanics, it was probably starting to slip a bit, so I really felt I needed that year to, to get back into the university lifestyle. And then once I'd sort of decided well, I want to, wanted to go into a CDT with a year of teaching, I, I looked around at a number of different ones. So one of the first ones I looked at was one of the renewable energy ones, which is a... Collaboration between, I think it's Strathclyde, Oxford, and maybe Edinburgh or one of the other Scottish universities. And they had a few really cool projects going, but it was much more geared towards sort of CFD simulation and things like that. And I've heard nothing but pain for pe- from people who spend their life doing s- CFD simulation. So um, I-, I think that pushed me more towards the computer science-based projects. Uh, and then what one day I was l- looking through on com and uh, a project that was actually quite related to the job I was in came up and so I I sent the supervisor an email saying look I'm working at the moment but I'd love to have um, a talk with you about this uh, PhD Uh, and he he replied saying yeah fine that that's great we'll we'll have a chat about it 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 was it was just a really nice informal chat to to get to know what the he was like Al, my supervisor, is a legend. He's really chill. Uh, and so sort of that really put me at ease, finding a supervisor that I was comfortable with. Uh, and I, I think as we'll discover, it's, it's sometimes as much about the the supervisor relationship as it is about whether the, the subject you're doing is something that you're really passionate about. Like, that's important, but if you don't have someone who's sort of in your corner pushing you, it, it can be a real struggle. But yeah, so... Once I'd, I'd found it, I, I applied, went through a load of interviews, and and they, luckily they they, get, they offered me a position. So uh, that, that's how I started. But yeah, it was, it, it was a, it was a relatively long process, I'd say, from the time I would started looking for one to the to the time I'd applied was probably about three or four months. I, I'd say I actually applied quite late though. So once I, I'd put all my applications in and things, they they moved it along quite quickly. But yeah, that, that was the start of my PhD. How, how, did, how did you guys find, find starting yours straight, of, straight out of undergrad? Well, I
0: was going to say this is one of the differences be, between uh, David, myself, and you, Ed, is that you're the the one of us who's moved institutions. And it's interesting, the, foc- the, um, the focus you put on the supervisor, and I think I'd echo that, in that for you especially, moving to a new institution where you maybe don't know the the workings of the institution you don't really know any of the academics it's so important to have that good relationship with the supervisor who can let you know who's the right people for what what things where because yeah it would i think the worst experience anybody could really have with phds would be a supervisor that they don't get on with in a new place where they know nobody else I think David and I are both in the, or at least to some extent, in the adva- in the advantageous position of having been at the institution that we work at for a long period of time, knowing plenty of people in the department who we could go to with problems. It, like it, Specifically, I think both of us have spent time working in the research group prior to starting our PhDs that we now work in as, as part of our PhDs, and so know people in that research group as well
2: yeah i i think not going back to imperial was probably high on my list of of where i wanted to apply as well because i i think i'd sort of decided i'd had enough time in london uh, and if i was going somewhere else uh, it would be nice to be out in out in the countryside so, so it wasn't purely based on sort of supervision and it, I, I was looking at sort of Um, Loughborough there are a few projects going which is is also a nice place to go for for sport but yeah it is it was really comforting knowing that there was someone there that I got on with and it's it's actually been really easy to slot into the the social side of things here even with COVID going on at the moment I I don't think that should be surprising because if you've been accepted into a PhD programme, you've essentially been vetted to make sure that you get on with all the people that are already there. So it's not entirely surprising that everyone goes through this process, generally gets on with each other. Do you think that was helped, or at least
0: getting on with lots of people was helped by being part of the CDT cohort of people doing similar stuff? possibly making you feel like you were back in undergrad being in a year group in undergrad where you had people in a similar situation who you had natural affinities with
2: yeah so they they try and really instill that sort of year group mentality within us in in our cohorts as our cdt and they put a lot of time and effort into running socials and, and running other things like that
1: i guess as well because you moved to Uh, another university it meant that you were kind of almost you were almost forced to make friends whereas perhaps for ed and i because we already know a lot of other people that will still be at university at imperial through clubs and through other avenues there is perhaps less pressure to integrate as fully with
0: our phd peers i don't know if edmund you'd agree with that Maybe I think my by virtue of being part of the university already and having friends and having and knowing people and in my situation also not starting not having a year of CDT related activities only in my first year maybe hasn't has meant I haven't engaged as much with the cohort as I might have done if the situation were changed to being maybe working that first year purely on an EMRES which like you're doing it i yeah i maybe don't engage as much with my cdt as, as you do i think to some extent it's because of the broadness of the subject as well and the fact that i'm spend most of my time working on my phd project directly my cdt is so covers such a large variety of different amounts of research specifically with everybody focusing very on very technical and very small niche areas of that research and without there isn't as much of a, a teaching that should really cover cover to everybody. Whereas for you, I think with machine learning and and that sort of area, it is there's lots of shared knowledge that's required to be imparted for everybody. Whereas for us, that's that's not so much the case.
2: Yeah, that's definitely something we've talked about before as well. The the, the amount of overlap that we all have coming into this CDT.
0: So, David, you probably have a kind of a very different perspective uh, to how you started your PhD. Can you tell us that story?
1: Yes. So, uh, in contrast to Ed Clark, who actively sort of went out and decided he wanted to do a PhD and then looked online and sort of researched uh, open positions, I uh, to say I stumbled into mine would possibly be a bit of an overstatement, but it's not far away from the truth because. I initially started working in the group because for my penultimate summer of my undergraduate, I was enabled to secure an internship with any company that I was particularly interested in working for. I'd had quite a few rejections. So at that point, I, on the back of one of my uh, practical labs, in fact, the supervisor of that was... Uh, sort of keen on me joining their group over the summer in order to do a bit of work with them and because I had basically no other options for my summer I I accepted and I really enjoyed my time there and on the back of that he sort of said to me we've also liked having you here would you be interested in a PhD because we have an open position for the upgrade of the detector at CERN which is what I'd been kind of in some way working on during my internship as well. So at that time, I, I also had an offer for a PhD through my master's project in a similar vein, based on the back of the work I'd done in my master's project, which was on uh, ultra-cold molecules and creating an electronic trap for them. My supervisor, again, had a position open to sort of continue that line of research in the end, I decided to take the one that was in high-energy physics and particle physics, mainly, I think, because in some ways, um, being able to say that you work at CERN carries a lot of weight. Um, it looks good on the CV. <laughs> it's got the cool factor, too. Yeah, and, and also, in my personal opinion at the time, I felt that working on the upgrades to the, to the detector had a lot of possibilities, whereas what I was working on in my master's project had the potential to be a dead end where I could sink a number of years into the research and then discover that nothing good was going to come of it and at which point I would I maybe was wrong in thinking this but I I felt that I would maybe wasted a number of years and would have to maybe start again or move to something else so it felt like less of a risk taking the one in particle physics because there was less of that sort of very specific niche which I felt I could fall into and then not be able to get out of and hence that's why I chose the particle physics one and have, have been here since
2: yeah I think that really brings up the point of I, I felt a lot more secure in choosing my PhD because I uh, I had an external partner apart from the university who who's one funding me but also interested in the research i'm doing it, it definitely felt like it it w- almost wouldn't allow to be it, it's not going to be allowed to be a dead end and it's I, I was far less likely to be plowing years of my life into something that maybe wouldn't come to fruition in the end so, so i think going into a phd with external partners uh apart from the university really put me at ease yeah yeah I don't have any regrets for taking the Particle Physics one. I'm
1: very happy here. I am kind of interested, I sometimes think, whether I would have made any sort of major discovery in the, if I'd taken the alternative PhD, because I think there was perhaps more scope for that, because it was a sort of very niche thing that maybe myself and one or two other people would be working on and no one else was really doing in the world in general... If it had worked, then I I would have made a quite significant discovery and sort of pushed science forward quite a bit. So I think that would have been very cool, and I think I would have certainly been happy taking that PhD as well. But I, in the end, I, it was, as you say, to do with to to do with risk. Yeah, as with all research, it's higher risk, higher reward. Exactly, and yeah, it, it also wouldn't have meant that I could. Come and live for a year and a half here in CERN and in Switzerland. So that's certainly a bonus. Whereas I would have been in a lab in the basement of Imperial for three years straight, which would have been a very different experience, I think.
0: Absolutely. Don't judge that too harshly for some of us who spend time in the labs in the basement of Imperial. Yeah, I feel like I kind of sit more on more with you, David, in the around the time that I was finishing my my masters. Uh, at imperial i was having looking for looking for jobs and finding that there were companies that really liked me and buy my cv but didn't have positions open because of the uncertainty around the brexit negotiations i wanted to go into technical side of uh, of working with an engineering there were several companies who know yeah, who who i had very nice conversations in with them but yeah, the other just they didn't have the, the positions open and my my master's project, my supervisor for that, we got on very well and he, towards the end of the project, asked me whether I had any plans for the next year. He suggested a couple of, of companies I could reach out to, some of them were interested, some of them didn't have positions that were... That worked for me, and he also said, "Oh, by the way, I've got a a PhD. If you're interested." Uh, I was probably the—I spent the majority of my undergraduate thinking. Now I'm I'm not going to do a PhD. I'm going to get get my four years and get out. But (laughs) it got doing the master's project was what actually really attracted me to to the PhD. It was being able to put more time into an investigation, put more time into some effectively what it was for us was a kind of shortened research project or shortened PhD. You you do similar processes, you have the similar style of gateways, you have the similar sort of ending where you have to, to write a, a a piece of work and you have to defend it in a, a viva. And that really attracted me to the PhD and the PhD opportunity came through a CDT. It didn't hurt that the project was, was pretty good too.
2: I think we, we should at least touch on a, a few little differences between the style of PhD in the UK and at least US PhDs in that none of us had to go and do qualification exams to get into our PhDs, w- which is something that is very different about the US system and they have an arguably more rigorous standard to, to enter into some of the programmes possibly i think we all were interviewed rather than being having to take
0: examinations and our our academic abilities were were based on our either previous experience with those supervisors and our our imperial degrees or rather than doing independent testing i don't know whether you count that as more rigorous or just
2: yeah i think it's probably just different And, and also a lot of people when they're coming into starting PhDs are quite concerned with writing their project proposal. So how, how, did you guys have to write a proposal before you were accepted in for, for the project?
0: No, nope, my proposal was... Pr- the proposal for the project I was doing was pre-written. So we had a read-through it, we discussion with the supervisors and, and we were happy to go with it. So for me, I
1: also didn't, mainly because this sort of cohort system that I was in for high-energy physics at Imperial meant that the majority of students come in without a project much like CDT that you're on, Ed Clark yeah. and then after six months of teaching and a couple of weeks of uh, potential supervisors selling their projects to the students they, an agreement is met between the students and the supervisors and everyone gets a project which they, they most people have to choose one or two and put their preferences and then sort of Based on those preferences, as long as there aren't too many people wanting to work on a certain experiment, everyone gets what they want. And at that point, we all wrote our proposals for what we want to do in the next two and a half, three years. So the sort of project proposal came after I got accepted. I think I did have to write one for my sort of Im- official imperial admissions application, yep. but that wasn't taken particularly seriously and and it was very much an outline of I I want to work in particle physics upgrading the detector (laughs) there there was very little specifics required because it didn't get looked at seriously it wasn't part of why I got in if that makes sense It, it was just a formality
2: I, I think the reason I brought this up is because I, I've spent a, a little bit of time on online forums, seeing people getting extremely worried, trying to find a, a specific project that they that they really want to throw themselves into, or at least they they feel pressure on themselves to write a very detailed proposal with, with it all thought out, and that they struggle going through having to write one of these for every single PhD they apply for Uh, and I think at least from all of us three it's it's as much about finding the the place you want to do it that will give you the freedom that you need to to develop your project and also finding the supervisor that essentially either gives you the project with most of the proposal written or will work with you to shape it and form it rather than blindly applying for PhD programmes and having to write page-long documents about this specific bit of research that you want to do, which which I think is not the way to go about applying for PhDs. Yeah, I, I think so. And from what I
1: understand, speaking to some of the supervisors and professors, in my group at least, is that they're certainly not looking for people who have a specific idea of what they want to do, they're more looking at the kind of person you are and whether you're adept at the skills required to do the PhD rather than you having a
0: specific idea of exactly what you want to do. I think anybody looks at those proposals towards the middle of their projects, they'll find that none of it really lines up with what they're actually doing now. Uh, The whole point of research being that you discover and change your plans based on discoveries you make.
2: Yeah. And if you place too much importance on the document that you've written your proposal on through your PhD, you'll constantly be judging yourself by something that's no longer relevant and you should be allowing yourself the freedom to think in new ways rather than going back to this document written years ago that says you should be on this bit now.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think it's something that you definitely should not worry about because the fact is that you're almost certainly never going to do exactly what you propose for a multitude of reasons and therefore again i don't think from what i understand it's an important part of the application it's more to it to give an indication that you you know at least what the concept of doing the phd would entail rather than specifically what exactly you're going to work on whilst you're there
2: well, I, th- I think that sort of uh, is, is a good wrap-up for getting into PhDs and the, the admissions process we all went through.
0: Yeah, I think next thing we kind of wanted to, to, to talk about was, was sport in the upcoming year. But first, maybe we wanted to touch on some of the, the bigger stories in sport this week because there have been a couple of uh, things that we've been following that have come to an end this or come to a come to a fall this week maybe it's a better way of saying it
2: yeah so um was it last week or the week before we spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about the america's cup series over in new zealand we were quite excited because we were looking forward to american magic getting their severely broken boat back in the water for the semi-finals this weekend Against the against Luna Rossa Prada Pirelli, they went out and kicked, a, kicked it around on the course yesterday and the day before, resulting in in two pretty substantial wins um, for the Italians. With American Magic having some severe problems with their foils, uh, and it, it was I, I think it was quite disheartening to see their challenge fall apart in in a way that that was just no sportsman wants to see see their competitors drop out because they're having technical issues and that was that was just heartbreaking yeah it was a very dominant performance yeah as spectators
1: as well we're also looking forward to good racing and when there's only one boat going at full speed and the others lagging a long way behind it just becomes a procession and there's there's no real reason to keep watching in a way because you know what the result's going to be from the first few minutes. So, I think in two weeks' time, when there's the final of the Prada Cup between Ineos and Luna Rossa, I believe, we hope that there'll be a lot tighter racing. And if the round robin events that happened before the semi final that we've just discussed are any indication, I think that will certainly be the case. And there certainly seems to be a competitive spirit, shall we say, between <laughs> the two Definitely. teams. So, it could get a bit spicy
2: yeah i think it was sad because there were there were glimpses of very good racing going on i mean american magic had on the first day at least had the the highest speed of either of the two boats going about 53 knots which is uh over 100 kilometers an hour uh, and and so they were technically the fastest boat over the weekend but just having missed out on those last two weeks of innovation that they they don't have that the the overall average speed gains that the Lunarossa have been making through incremental changes
1: yeah so looking forward yeah, I believe it's two weeks until the final is that right yeah and is it a best of seven again or is it more for the final I think
0: it's best of seven for the final there's been another major sporting event on the water as well though this week in, in the end of the, the Vendee Globe which had an exciting finish
2: yeah, so within sort of twenty four hours out from the finish, there was five boats that could have won. I was I was rooting for <laughs> for Boris Herman to to grab the win. It was it was a bit of contention at the end because. The guy who came over the finish line in first didn't actually win because uh, the second place boat, Matricock had a time bonus for helping one of his fellow competitors out in the Southern Ocean. So he had had a 10-hour time bonus. So even though he crossed the line in second, he still won overall. Uh, And the other very sad thing that came out of that was um, Boris Herman sort of 90 miles out from the finish line, hit a fishing boat and broke one of his foils and his bowsprit. Uh, and so he was due to come in, uh, in around third place. And with his time bonus, he may have come in second overall. So he, he sort of had to strap his boat back together and then limp home into the finish. Uh, and he's still come fourth overall, which is fantastic but it just it's so heartbreaking to to see something like that happen so close to the finish after being at sea for 80 days and tens of thousands of miles that that you're that close to the finish and hit a fishing boat it's the one
0: moment of concentration Lost concentration. It shows you how important being focused all the time on
2: those events is. Mm. It, it, the, the worst thing was it wasn't even that. It was um, so they have alar- radar alarms and lots of things that should be checking out for boats in, in close proximity. Uh, and he'd been checking his systems for all the boats had been going past previous to that, and all of all of his systems had been working fine. But he, he still he still managed to wake up with. Uh, <laughs> his foil lodged against the side of a fishing boat
1: so you say that he broke his foil does that mean that so these boats are foiling during this round the world race
2: yeah yeah so uh, unlike the america's cup boats which have uh, t4 rudders and two foils on the side so they're fully up out of the water the Vonde globe boats the amoka 60 has two lateral foils out of the side of the boat sort of similar to the America's Cup boats but not really. They're more like a uh, daggerboard that they can pull up and down rather than swing up and down like the arms on the America's Cup boats. Uh, and then they basically bring the body of the hull out of the water and then just have the foil and the back of the boat as their points that are actually keeping them stable. But, but they've caused huge amounts of problems this time around the world. They, they've I think four or five people have broken foils and and some of them have had to pull out yeah
1: it seems to me to be quite scary doing a sort of middle of the ocean race when you're on something that's that's foiling and the whole sort of hull is out of the water it seems to make more sense when you've got in when you're in such an enclosed area like in the america's cup or in a dinghy race but around the world race I, I i guess there's a massive speed benefit but it also seems uh, terrifying.
2: Oh yeah, the, these things are. Get, it's like crashing a car if, if you hit something. That you're going thirty knots, and if you hit, so so people have hit sort of submerged containers, uh, and so they've started having to wear like body protection armor whilst walking around the boats just in case they, they decelerate or hit a wave wrong, because that deceleration c- can be fatal.
0: Yeah. So, looking forward to the sports, the sport that's coming up is is coming close to the start of both the the cycling and Formula One seasons, which were the two we wanted to talk a little bit about today. And yeah, they bring with them some, some interesting storylines. We're probably going to do a review episode for the upcoming seasons in both in the upcoming weeks. But just just as a starting point, in some of the news has been that's been filtering out in the last few weeks. I think want to start with the the step away from cycling from Tom Dumoulin, which is a, a really sad story and kind of mirrors that of Marcel Kittel uh, a couple of years ago it's interesting and it shows the pressure that are on on professional athletes right now and somebody who was thrust to the fore after his success at the Giro d'Italia uh, in 2017 and there seems to have been so much pressure on him and then some issues with with the team sunward team that he was with and then uh, moving to Jumbo Visma he had some some unluck with with getting an, uh, an illness that if, that knocked him out for a good chunk of the season, he was then had to deal with the the break for, of the season for COVID, and had been seeing seeing professional, I believe, toward the end of last season. Uh, but it, the reaction has been positive, and it, it's nice to see that there is support within the sport for, for and a bit more understanding for the impact of of success and failure on mental health and how how some people are able to uh can respect and support people when they're having these issues
2: yeah uh, it's been really nice to see the way that Yumbo Visma have addressed it that, that the way at least they put out on the on their social media channels was that they were completely accepting of Demulan's position and that they were more than happy to pay place him on unpaid leave rather than kick him out of the squad so so that they're, they're they're not closing the door on him for any or anything just because that he feels he needs to take the time off. It, it's I I think it's good for the sport to see that even if you're at the sort of high end of of the performance level, you still need to take this stuff seriously. Uh, and it's it's been one of the questions asked of sort of uh, Watt Van Aert and Matthew Van Der Poel is uh, are they actually going to be able to support this year-round racing that they're doing at the moment with the with the cross season in the winter and then moving over to the to the um road season for for the summer and spring uh, and uh, some people have, have questioned whether that's a sensible thing to do, be doing
0: yeah there's been comments about them their life just being cycling and how sustainable that is especially for example even with the Venipole and people like that where if you get an injury how how dramatic is that and the effect that will have on them and whether they're able to be strong and and keep this going for a long period or whether whether they will find that they don't have the love for the sport anymore i hope we see tom back again um i think we all learned not to doubt the diesel um through the 2017 season and hopefully he will be back I think as well, something that's kind of maybe
1: not really mentioned is uh, people talk a lot about the sort of coping with defeat in the sort of the mental aspect of sport. But on on the other side, once, and what's highlighted here with Tom Dumoulin is that there's also a massive mental issue in terms of the weight of expectation after you have success to be able to continue being successful. And that can almost be more damaging than a, a defeat in, in a way, because you're constantly putting pressure on yourself to emulate what you've already achieved and continue to be at that same level when it just might not be possible because of an injury or illness. But people who perhaps are not reading the news and and are not staying up to date on exactly everything that's happened, they see him coming in the pack or that maybe he's not winning races and not in the top ten of Grand Tours and they suddenly, he perhaps... is seeing this sort of this negative press because he's not emulating what he was able to do at the Giro, and I, I can sort of, I can't empathise, but I can certainly sympathise with that sort of weight of expectation
0: on him. Yeah, what are what are the other storylines coming into into the the sports season ahead that we can think of?
2: One of the stories I have particularly enjoyed this week is the uh, new kit from EF Education First, which is. <laughs> really taking the uh, UCI rules that they've been slapped with over the previous year with some of their more uh, interesting kits shall we say namely their uh, Palace collaboration at the Giro d'Italia which they got fined for Uh, and they've uh, really taken a hard line on being uh, very much within the rules for their new jersey yeah, it's it potentially
0: highlights some of the issues with with the UCI being this all all knowing, all rulings independent organization within cycling. Uh and maybe they maybe they don't get the get it right every time, shall we say. Uh hopefully they we'll see more colourful and more dramatic and exciting kits from EF later in the season. But I think it's a nice statement from them putting this out.
1: Yeah, and it's certainly a sort of tongue in cheek
0: kit. That makes a point which
1: I think is is important and it gets people talking about the kit when if they just sort of put out the same one as last year they perhaps would not have got so much traction but because they're doing this this different thing they're they're getting people to to look at the kit and and it becomes recognisable so I, I think they've certainly played it well
2: Yeah, and I think one of the other stories I've it's been difficult to listen to this week well it, i mean it's a sensible t- decision is the delay to the to many of the opening races of the pro peloton season so there have been a lot of announcements today that um debuts of uh at least a few riders have had to been pushed back due to the cancellation of races it's definitely the case that the the calendar is very
0: much provisional at the moment and it will be it'll be interesting to see when we when and where we get racing i I think we can trust the Middle Eastern races uh early in the season as potentially being ones what we'll probably get, but maybe maybe not some of the early European races it's been nice to see see racing on Australia, and the cycling festival down there has and potentially the lack of of a full world tour contingent down there because of the the requirements on them. And the requirements of quarantine has allowed some young talent to to show itself off. Uh, Richie Port, working, winning the stage at Willunga Hill for I think the seventh time, but still with with young talent with him, which has been exciting and great to see.
2: I was about to say Richie Port, young talent. as
1: well, what I thought was quite nice is, for instance, people like Richie Port who are in Australia at the moment training, and I, I assume being with his family, because he is Australian. It, he obviously wasn't able to bring the entire uh, INEOS contingent down with him so instead he was competing in the Tour Down Under for just the Australian national team and that was similar to a lot of other riders as well that were sort of maybe Australian born but couldn't compete with their world tour teams so instead were putting on the national colours which I thought was quite a nice touch Yeah that was very nice to see Very true, yeah And yeah, sending the women's side as well sarah gigante who won the overall and i think two stages seems like a, a very promising young talent in australian cycling and currently riding i think for a, an american team but i don't think it'll be long before she's in one of the world tour sides
0: yeah on the f1 side there's been been some interesting stories too. it it's been we've seen our first outing with carl Sainz in a in a ferrari which was nice to see i think we It seemed like a good performance and he seems to be taking his approach to, to joining Ferrari in a similar way to how he did with McLaren and really throwing himself at, at any opportunities that are available to him and showing his enthusiasm. It's one of the things I think we all love from him is just that... That he he puts his emotion out there. He he's able to to endear himself to to the to the world potentially in a different way to lots of the other very hyper competitive Formula One drivers who who maybe don't have that personality. But um, and we, I think we've seen also that he, he excelled at McLaren where he was allowed to have that personality he was allowed to have people play off of him he was allowed to have a bit of fun and it, hopefully Ferrari, maybe they won't let him do as much but hopefully he'll be able to draw some smiles in the Ferrari team on the Carlos Sainz senior side he has announced he'll be racing the electric rally series upcoming Extreme E I think Extreme cool. E uh who'll be racing against uh jensen button now who will be who'll also be racing in the extreme e-series yeah who he must be a busy boy because he's also signed up as a williams special advisor in the last week so busy jensen he's also got a new child and uh, yeah this uh, he's he he was probably my favorite formula one driver growing up he i Still think the greatest woman one race ever is 2011 Canada, uh, and the the story of Button winning his 2009 World Championship is also pretty amazing um, from ashes to to winning story. But yeah, I I still follow him and he's. He's great fun, and I think it will be good for Williams, and it will also be good for the Extreme E-Series. Some other exciting names in the Extreme E-Series as well. Lewis Hamilton has a team. I think they're yet to announce their drivers, but... I think they have released their drivers. One of them's another,
1: well, possibly... Oh, Sebastian Loeb. Exactly. Yes. If if there is a goat in rally driving, I I think Sebastian Loeb has that title completely tied up. Perhaps only with Carlos Sainz being the other competitor really and again a sort of a childhood hero and sort of when maybe well rallying doesn't seem to be quite at the forefront of sport as it was perhaps in the early 2000s when Sebastian Loeb won I think eight consecutive or nine consecutive championships and yeah he clearly still very talented um, and he's going to be driving for Lewis Hamilton who I can only imagine the conversation went well who's the, who's the greatest rally driver ever? Uh, Loeb, well, we'll take him then. And then uh, I can't remember who the woman is for Lewis, uh, but
0: I believe she's also a champion in rallying as well. Brings us nicely on to the Lewis Hamilton uh, stories. It's, he still hasn't signed a contract, or non story, he still hasn't signed a contract, but I don't think anybody is in Andrea the illusion that he won't be driving the Mercedes this year. Uh, so expect a year of potentially Lewis dominance, but. Uh, it, it, we were discussing, and we we don't think it's the money. We are we're not sure what additional terms are yet to be agreed, but maybe it's not the maybe it's not the uh, salary. No, That's the area for discussion. We potentially thought maybe diversity within the team was something that might be a sticking point at the moment.
1: Yeah, and I think especially how vocal he was about these issues over the last season. And given that he's been in Formula One for 13 years now, I, I don't think that he'd be really putting this much effort into the contract if it was about an extra million or two on his salary. But I think, and I, well, this is all speculation, but I think we also hope that it's perhaps about increasing diversity in the team and making sure that they commit to working towards
0: that. Um, because I think that's something that is very important to him. Yeah, especially with the upcoming salary cap, I don't see money being being the main focus of this. I he's earned he's earned probably enough and the ventures I I think it's going to be either about diversity or about time to be able to commit to other ventures or potentially some stake within Mercedes' uh, Formula 1 team. Yeah, would oh. be my my speculation
2: I I think the only thing about speculating whether it's about diversity I'd be surprised if that's the hill that Mercedes is prepared to die on well not die on but like have a large amount of uh, media coverage over that they're taking a long time to discuss it I don't see how that would be positive for them after the fact to be put out that oh they were really worried about Putting diversity clauses in his contract, uh, I, I don't see how that would be good for them in any way. I think
0: maybe that we are blowing this out of proportion. In that the, I think the main sticking point and the main delay for Hamilton signing his contract was actually Toto Wolf signing his contract. And yeah, probably. That Hamilton, I don't think, wanted to be at a Mercedes without Toto Toto at the helm. And so Toto signing his contract in December was possibly the starting point for Hamilton signing his contract. And this sort of negotiation is not an unreasonable length of time for the sort of deal that we're, we're talking about.
2: Yeah. Who, who knows, maybe he's rushing into his contract that he, he'll succeed uh, Toto when he leaves.
0: You never know. That or it's a, we don't want George joining this team contract. But I don't
2: <laughs> <laughs> No, that would be that would be not in not very sportsmanlike.
0: So we wanted to to move on from from news in sport to, to news in, in the rest of the world this week and it has been a busy week in the world with one story really dominating and i think a most qualified person to to talk about this
2: is somebody with skin in the game in uh in ed i'm not sure how qualified i i am to talk about this and i'll preface this by saying i am not a financial uh, advisor and i have no idea what i'm talking about in in any sort of qualified sense do not take this as financial advice please 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 (laughs) This week, we we've seen sort of the rallying of the Wall Street bet subreddit against the, the against the whole of Wall Street, and the whole basis of this was on the um, GameStop stock. And so, what had been happening with them is that they'd been seeing a gradual decline over the past sort of three or four years, and so Wall Street had started shorting their stock. That means they're borrowing stock and selling it at a higher price and then waiting and giving it back and then uh, because they can then make a profit whilst the value drops Uh, and so they're shorting all of this stock uh, and so they're having to borrow all of these stocks from people who own them and reddit basically saw that not only had they been shorting the stock, they'd been selling essentially what's called known as naked shorts, so selling stocks that they don't actually own uh, on the basis that in the near future they can buy them back at an even lower price uh, and make a profit from it. But but what Reddit has done is just started completely soaking up the market of, of any stocks that are available. Which means that when the Wall Street bankers eventually have to have stocks to hand back to the people that they've borrowed them from and then sold, that they'll have to buy them from all these redditors that, are, that have soaked up all of these stocks, which is going to increase the stock price as as, as Reddit just holds them, and if they refute, restrict the market flow of these stocks back into the into the market for these people who have been shorting it to, to buy I, I it's coming in the in the next few weeks that we're, we're going to see a massive spike in the in the price of the GME stock that this has also flowed over into into another number of other stocks such as AMC which is the American theater companies uh, and it, it's it's become less of a quick way to get money I, I mean some people have made billions off this but it's more of a united drive against wall street uh, and we've seen apps trading apps like Robinhood, restrict the amount of trading uh, and people start to go throw up their arms saying it, it's one more one rule for wall street being allowed to manipulate the market but when the individual everyday person starts to do it the sec starts getting involved uh, and they're they're really starting to crack down and and starting to threaten the, these redditors who are basically ju- just working within the rules that they've been given to to stick it to Wall Street, which it which I really hope they do because I've got quite a bit of money invested in it.
0: It is it's an interesting point that's been brought up that he, it challenges the whole point of the whole idea of shorting, and that shorting is starting to be abused by hedge funds to drive companies into the ground to make huge amounts of money by virtue of the fact that you start shorting a company is going especially if you start doing it to a large extent is going to affect that company and drive its stock price down and it's possibly not the most morally agreeable thing to do especially it seems it's one of those things within the financial market where it seems to be making money out of nothing and I know that shorting. Was is originally and the, the the idea is originally intended to, to keep the market in check and, and keep things balanced but the way it's being used now and abused now by by some financial professionals is you could argue unethical
2: yeah because c- I mean if they run the stock price far enough into the ground that it's not worth anything and the company goes bankrupt and there's nothing left of it they don't have to buy these shares so and hand back to the people they borrowed them from it's essentially a win-win game where they can just drive companies into bankruptcy and never have to have any accountability for this huge amount of shorting that they're doing. And effectively, people will lose their jobs over it just because they are targeting a single company to run it into the ground. And that's why also the Reddit community has really rallied around it because it's, it is in fact saving people's jobs by keeping this company afloat.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why there's been sort of such a positive movement around this is because yeah it's not just about making money quickly and sort of an opportunity to make money as an everyday person but because it's putting it's making a stand against this sort of negative action by these hedge funds and really showing them to be this sort of unethical body that's just there to essentially yeah make money out of other people's failures so i think that's why it's striking such a tune with so many people. And also, I think it's quite interesting that when you have both Democratic and Republican Congress people siding with these retail investors that are going against the hedge funds, um, perhaps for different reasons, but instead having the same opinion, it really shows that I think these hedge funds are probably in the wrong if, if both the Republicans and the Democrats are not supporting them.
0: I think you probably know that you're doing something wrong at that point. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see the effect this has on the market going forward.
2: Yeah, it will be. And it's also highlighted how much influence that these hedge funds have on media. I mean, CNBC started putting out a article that one of the major hedge funds had managed to close all of their short positions, which was just a complete lie. And so we're seeing large-scale manipulation of the stock market through media companies, which is illegal. Uh, And so so we're we're really... It's just another point to to highlight that it seems to be okay for for these large hedge funds which have a large amount of power to do whatever they want to to combat these sort sort of... There's literally thousands of people invested in it for a small amount of money. Yeah, but I
1: think there is some
2: danger to this as well
1: in that certainly one of the reasons why... The sort of the crash that happened in the 1920s in America was so bad was because of essentially individuals speculating on the stock market without too much knowledge which of the overall economy which created these sort of bubbles which when they burst caused massive sort of financial damage to the whole economy and I think that there is a sort of a message in that and a sort of a point that we have to at least be wary that while this is certainly A stand that people are taking to combat these hedge funds shorting companies, I don't think it means that people should have suddenly this sort of this free reign to control the stock market and control the economy because the majority of us um, do not know what we're really doing, to be honest. Like, this seems like a fairly cut and dry decision to try and combat, as I said, these hedge funds. But once this is over, People will probably still want to continue investing in things. And if they don't have the knowledge to make good decisions, then that could lead to bubbles which, when burst, will cause damage to everyone.
0: We shall see. I think th- maybe there's been a lot of work done by people in the finance industry to make it appear very hard and complicated which which also gives that impression but yes it's i would still shy away from from individual investments from because for uh, and not not say that it's it's the best thing that people should be doing investing individually unless you really know or really believe in the company that you're investing in
1: yeah and especially if things like gamestop at the end of the day they are in in, in a way a sort of a dying business the sort of the -the on-the-market shops for games is something that hasn't really been a requirement for a number of years now because of the proliferation of online retailers for games such as Steam and the individual online shops for PlayStation and the Xbox. So although this whole news cycle has caused a lot of investment in GameStop, in the long term, I don't think... It's a sound investment because it's not something that will be making money going into the future. So yeah, I think that there's still a lot that people need to learn before they want to invest properly in these markets. And we're none of us are certainly experienced enough, I don't think, to
0: give that we advice. We say again, don't take us as financial advisors, please. <laughs> we we are not like we we are scientists. We kind of understand some of the maths
1: and. I mean, certainly I understand some of the complexity theory which is used to model stock markets. But as, as they say on a lot of the sites, past performance of a stock is not an indicator of future performance. And especially at the moment, although the stock market has been going up, especially in America, over the last year or so, that is because of massive federal injections of money into these companies in order to keep the stock market afloat because it was seen as this sort of be-all and end-all indicator of how the economy is performing, when in reality it probably isn't. And this means that it's probably beyond these sort of massive inflationary prices because of um, combating uh, these sort of short squeezes, as they're called. The stock market should, at the moment in general, be going down because the economies are shrinking around the world because of the COVID crisis. So uh, that uh, that's probably a very naive take on the whole thing. It's yeah, it's probably not the best time to invest anyway. So
0: something away from from the biggest news story of the week. Something I wanted to talk about was was the Sony Alpha 1 or Sony A1 mirrorless camera. It's for me Somebody who 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 likes photography, who likes taking pictures, who likes capturing moments like that, and kind of also likes the technology side of us. I think anybody who's into engineering or anything like that, it would like the technical side to some degree as well. Is Sony A one being the first? I'd say first properly pro or professional mirrorless camera, and it shows the potential that we've always seen in in mirrorless, and taking over from dslr's potentially in the future really coming to the fore so so the specifications being it's 50 megapixel resolution 30 frames per second capture and i know that's an electronic shutter so it's probably not ideal for sports but it's over 10 for a manual shutter so these are kind of really top end specs that we're seeing only in the top professional level cameras that are used within sport and other of so applications and yes this isn't going to become the new studio cameras those there's, there's medium format for that but also medium format has had its mirrorless influx as well but yeah this is the i think the last really market segment where a truly pro uh, mirrorless camera has arrived and it's shown the potential of what can be happening but not only that it shows the potential that mirrorless can do both on this the stills images professional sports photographers professional journalistic photographers side but they can also carry around a 8k 4k capable camera with them which is something that we've never really had this is it's really the jack of all trades camera that does everything that a professional might need and the they've also brought out with it a phone which is an interesting move not something we've seen before but the sony Xperia pro being a phone coming out kind of alongside a camera the idea being with this that the phone will be able to be a external monitor and also a source for for the camera so you can directly send 4k video to the phone and via 5g then send that somewhere else this like it gives the ideas of potentially the end of the kind of media news trucks out there that you see sending information, when nowadays, now with this sort of system, all you really need is one man with a camera and a phone, and it will be able to do full sort of television-required-level imaging and video and audio in such a small package. It could see a real revolution and uh, in the way that we have video journalism, I think. And I think that this is where the most revolutionary part of this camera will be Uh, as much as the sports capabilities will probably be resolutionary that's a community that are quite slow in uptaking new technology they like to stick with what they know because in you never you don't get to see that moment again you don't get to see messy scoring and you don't get to have the opportunity to capture that the to get the shot that they get paid for they've only got a lot of the time in say a football game a one nail football game you've only got What a couple of seconds to capture the the shot that you can put on the paper. So they're likely to to wait a while before they move to a technology to new technology. But the video side of things, having these capabilities, will really could have the opportunities to revolutionise that sort of workflow.
2: Yeah, Uh, and I think it's it's worth noting that the price might seem extremely steep for for what it is. At least if you're thinking of buying the phone unless you've got the camera it's probably a very stupid thing to do because that the phone by itself is what two and a half thousand dollars yeah and the camera is six yeah so six and a half or, or something so but but in terms of the capability it gives you of being able to sit there and film or 8k footage and stream it live to wherever you want over a wireless connection that That's taking away so many of the extra things you'd need, sort of uh, uh, a 4K monitor that, that goes on your camera cage uh, or, or and then some sort of wireless uh, receiver and transceiver to go to your media van, as you said, Ed. Uh, and all of this costs a huge amount of money.
0: I mean, just for the sensor, 8K video recording in a similar way that they have here, five years ago, ten years ago, would be you'd be looking at 10 to 15 times the price that you're paying now. But yeah, it's, it's a real revolution, and it will be interesting to see what the sort of uptake is with this, and potentially the next generation will really be the one where we can get behind all right thank you very much for listening to this episode it's it's been a bit of a back to normality hopefully we'll have a a few more guest episodes we've, we've got some plans upcoming and hopefully you'll look forward to some some new content next week so thank you all for listening and good night